Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. So what I want you to do is now turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 22. We're going to be continuing our series called Nevertheless. And uh, I don't know about you, I heard there were some very interesting discussions last week in your life groups of Bible study about husbands and wives and gender roles and things like that. Um, but in everything that we've been talking about, it's been couched on this idea of suffering and the situation where the believers were suffering, understanding that Jesus, and uh, as, as Peter was explaining, it's all under the understanding that Jesus Christ has given us a hope and a promise and inheritance. And if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you've been able to say that in spite of anything that we might go through, whether it's authority, whether it's difficulty, personal, whether it's, you know, you know, uh, bond servanthood or whatever it is, that we are to learn to live out of our relationship with God. So we're going to continue that in this passage and talk about what it means to suffer for doing good. I know it's a very exciting topic for many of us. We're excited. Amen? <laughs> Um, but I really believe that these are topics that we need to talk about. Even now, I mean, there are different sufferings going on all over the world. And, but personally for us, some of us, we might feel like, oh, I'm not suffering that much. Or maybe I've gotten used to certain situations. But we need to talk about these kind of things now. So that when things do come up in the future, that we're prepared and we're ready. So uh, while you're turned to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22, uh, first thing I want to just start with is just a question for us this morning. The question is, what are the first emotions that come to mind when you see injustice? Just think of something that you feel like is considered injustice. Or maybe it, it might be hard to relate because you feel like, oh, I haven't really been personally affected by some kind of serious injustice, but maybe you know someone else has been affected by injustice. And what was your reaction? What was your response? And I think logically, a lot of our response when it comes to injustice is anger. We want to do something about it. We want to fight back. We want to correct what is wrong. We, we, we feel, uh, whether it's fear or, or feelings of retaliation, wanting to get vengeance. And it shows a lot about a person, how they respond in a situation of injustice, in a situation that isn't fair, in a situation where someone is out to harm you or unfairly treats you, a situation, and, and in fact, we may know there are a lot of different uh, situations and unfair kind of governments or injustices that has happened throughout our society or throughout history. And, and one of the, one of the uh, examples that came to mind was... Um, was actually the uh, civil rights movement in the United States uh, in the 1900s. And this was a situation that um, even though slavery had been outlawed uh, in, in the 1800s, for those of you who don't know U.S. history, you know, 1800s had slavery, they outlawed it. But even past that, into the 1900s, there was a, still a systemic system of oppression, of unfair treatment, of segregation. And... As I was thinking about this concept of injustice and how people respond, you know, it's so interesting to see how the civil rights movement really, quote-unquote, fought against the system of injustice and how people responded and what decisions and what actions actually catalyzed the civil rights movement to allow people of African-American descent to obtain equal rights. Uh, One of those people that... um, came to mind was uh, someone named Rosa Parks. Anyone know a, a woman named Rosa Parks? Okay, some of us, handful of us. Um, she was actually a very prominent person in the civil rights movement, uh, and many of us know her as the woman who would not give up her seat on the bus. And back in those times, uh, especially in the South, they were, very, they were written into law. It was written into the, the ordinances of the city and of the state that segregation was part of law that whites and blacks would sit in separate parts of the bus, in restaurants, and all forms of public transportation. Schools were segregated. 
And so for Rosa Parks, what she ended up doing was because on the bus system, blacks were supposed to sit in the back and whites were supposed to sit in the front because the front is like the best part of the bus. I guess it's not as bumpy, even though as a kid you love to sit at the back of the bus because it's like more fun. Um, but for older people, right, you, you, as you get older, you're like, oh, you know, I'm not about that back of the bus thing. But she refused to give up her seat because she was sitting somewhere near the middle. And at that time, it was lawful, or not lawful, but it was cultural or acceptable to require a colored person or a black person to give up their seat for a white person. And I wanted us to watch this video. It's actually a movie that did a remake of Rosa Parks and what happened during that bus incident. And I want us to really see how she responds and how she reacts during times of injustice. Just notice who, who she is, what she does, and how she responds to the systemic, even lawful segregation and injustice that is in her time. And this is a, a remake, so it's not the actual person, uh, but it was a, a movie, some of you might have watched it, called Arrested. And so let's watch it together, and then we'll talk about it afterward. Some of you want to watch that movie, you can rent it out. Um, I don't know about some of you, but I, I, there are just a lot of things that are just stirred up in, in, in my heart when you watch that clip. And uh, especially that part where uh, the, the bus driver moves the colored sign, right? You know, the, the police officer comes and says, but she's sitting in the colored section. And then the bus driver says, well, phew, phew. well she's not anymore, you know? And, and it, it's quite interesting because when you do a little bit more research into the situation, the law at that time, um, it was the law that colored people could sit in the colored section, but it became common practice for bus drivers to be able to move the sign to wherever they wanted to, or actually kick off uh, colored people if there were enough white people who wanted to get on the bus. Uh, the, the, the racial and systemic injustice was so deeply rooted in that time. And I, I don't know about you, but if some of you were to be approached. If you were Rosa Parks, like just think about how would you respond when that bus driver came up to you and just did what he did? Like, I don't know, like some of us are a little bit sad, like, oh heck no! Like there's no way that's gonna happen. Or some of us we would be like swearing or fighting that person. Other of us would be like, you know, just fighting and, and doing whatever we could, because like this is wrong. This is not fair. Like, how is this? Not, not only was it commonplace for segregation, but I, I, think, I don't know why, but it wasn't even in the, in the bounds of the law. Like the police officer said, this is the law. But it wasn't even the law for them to do that. Eventually, Rosa Parks' case got, um, it went through the courts, and eventually there was a, a related case that they actually won in the Supreme Court, which allowed them to, um, which allowed them to kind of desegregate desegregate some of the different issues or, or situations that they were in. But I think one of the things that, what is it, watching that video, it just brought up a lot of questions of, you know, God, like, what is it that, that we see about people? What is it about Rosa Parks? What is it about us when we face injustice that will cause us to respond in one way or the other? Whether it's a very confrontational way, where we fight for our rights, where we stand up for ourselves, where we in, sometimes go to the extreme of, if someone does something wrong to us, then what do we do? We do wrong back to them. Versus someone who, in her example, sits there. I mean, she's, she's, not, she's not totally giving up. She's sitting, but still respectfully. She's willing to get arrested. She goes off the bus, even on her own. She doesn't, they don't have to like grab her and force her off the bus. You know, what, what's the difference? What causes someone to react differently in those situations of injustice, in those situations of suffering, when someone does harm to that person? And I really believe that what we do in times of suffering, what we do in moments where we experience injustice will reveal a lot about what we believe. It will reveal a lot about our faith and who God is and what we have understanding of our relationship 
with who Jesus Christ is. And I don't know if you caught that, even in the flashback that uh, Rosa Parks' father was talking with her. He said, do not fear people, but have faith. And even as we're talking about today in Peter's situation, he's talking about all about how we ought to suffer as we do good because it really reveals something about who we believe. So hopefully you've turned to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22. And there's two things I want to talk about this morning as we talk about this whole concept of suffering for doing good. And the first point I wanted to talk about is doing good reveals your hope. The fact that doing good reveals your hope. It reveals what you hope in. So let's read verses 8, starting with verses 8 to 12. It says, Finally, all of you, humble mind, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So when we, when we first look at this passage, and we're talking about this concept of doing good reveals your hope. So right in the beginning of this passage, Peter, we see that he gives, he gives two commands. He gives two commands. First command is do good. I mean, we see that, right? Uh, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. These are all things that are, are good. They, they actually parallel some of the fruit of the Spirit that we see in other passages in Galatians. The second command, he says, is don't do evil. Don't do evil. He says, don't um, repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but instead do, do good. Bless other people. So, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, uh, you know, building blocks 101, right? The children's church, hey, children, you know, we got to do good because God is good and don't do evil because God hates evil. And the question is, why should we do this? And I think just generally, you know, as we're growing up, of course you ought to do good. And of course you ought not to do evil. But what's the rationale? Because life gets more complicated simply than black and white, good versus evil. In verses 10 to 12, Peter actually quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. It's a direct reference. Uh, and it talks about how God is against those who do evil, but he favors the righteous. So a lot of us will read passages like this in the Old Testament. So Peter's taking an Old Testament reference in Psalm and saying, this is why you ought to do good and not do evil, because if you want a good life, right? In verse 10, whoever desires for those who are good days, then don't do evil, do good, because God is for those who are righteous and against those who are evil. So, you know, he says, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord are against those who do evil. So again, the moral of the story so far seems to be do Good things, don't do evil things. Veggie tales, right? Be a good person, live a good life. Be like the tomato vegetable, the cucumber. I, sorry, I didn't watch Veggie Tales growing up. I didn't grow up in a Christian family, so all I know is it's like tomato vegetable, cucumber vegetable, and they sing songs and do dances and things like that. But this is the, you know, I, I think when we're a kid, when we're children, you're just forming your sense of morality, you're forming your sense of right and wrong, you're learning about Christian faith. But as you grow older, what's the problem? Things don't neatly fit into categories of good or bad. It becomes more complicated. And you could take something like this and you could say, oh, isn't that just like, then shouldn't we just believe in karma then? Is, is God preaching a, a gospel of karma? You ought to do good. Why? Because then something else will be done good to you. God will reward you. But is that what we believe? Do we believe in a God of karma? Do we believe what goes around comes around? You know, I, I think when I was a kid, that, that, was my, that was my worldview, you know? Like when we're children, that's kind of how we grow up. Like, oh, if you do, if I do all my homework, this is, I would go back and forth with my parents all the time. I would get to play video games. That was my mindset. 
But you know that's not true, right? How many amen? Just because you do all your homework doesn't mean you get to play video games. I mean, all the brothers can kind of identify, or at least some of the brothers. And he feels like, isn't justice not fair? Mom, Dad, like, I finished everything. Why won't you let me play? And I was like, Mom, you're evil. You know, like, you're evil. You're wrong. How, how is this fair? This is not fair. I did what I was supposed to do. Then why aren't you letting me get what I want? And you very quickly begin to learn as you grow and as you get older, get good things. The world is a very unjust world. And the simple understanding of just do good because you will get good things and then don't do evil because then you will avoid evil things, then that doesn't work anymore. And, and as we get older and older, then you begin to think about like, why are there so many cases, especially as Christians, as believers, why are there so many situations where you do good you live a good Christian life. You serve other people. You love. You join life group. You join ministry teams. Some of you are serving for the first time. I'm on a ministry team. God, I should get good things. And then the next day, something happens. Your boss criticizes you, gives you a depromotion. I don't know if that even exists. You get unpromoted. You get moved to another unit that you don't like. You get assigned to a project that's like the worst in the whole company. You're a student, you get a horrible grade, or you get put into this group where you hate all of your group mates and they're all freeloaders. Or for families, you know, like your kids are not turning out the way that you want it. God, I'm trying to do everything I can to raise my kids perfectly. But it's not working out. Life just doesn't work out the way that we want or expect. But yet, even though we try to do the good things, then why isn't that happening? That's the question that Paul addresses here in this next passage. Because we know life doesn't work that way. And Paul's not that naive, or sorry, not Paul. Peter is not that naive to somehow believe that life is so easily black and white. Let's continue on and read verses 13 to 17. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good, for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why should we, right here, he, Paul, uh, Peter leaves us in this place of feeling, God, you know, why, why should we do good? Because life doesn't work that way. It's, it's not fair. If we do good, sometimes we get evil as a result. So why should I even try to do any good? So Peter begins his response to this situation with a rhetorical question in verse 13. He asks, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? There's two ways to interpret that question. The first way to interpret that question, if this is a rhetorical question, Peter could be saying, like, there's no one there. Like, no one's going to harm you if you're going to do good, right? That's one way to interpret the rhetorical question. Like, if you're going to do good, then there's no one possible who can harm you. There's another way to interpret the question, and we see this in the New Living Translation. It says, now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? So the second way is, it's kind of saying, like, if, if, you're, if you're, like, a really, really good person, I, I know if some of you watch, like, The Simpsons, like, Ned Flanders, like, the super, like, pure everything. Uh, some of you guys never watch The Simpsons. So, anyways, he's a perfect guy, right? Like, why would you want to do something bad to someone who is always doing the right thing? And some of you are like, yeah, this is exactly the right people who I want to do bad things, right? So, some of you are the even, no, I'm just kidding. But... Even in these rhetorical questions, like, haha, Peter, I found some holes in your logic. Because regardless, whether you interpret the first way of there are no people who would want to harm you, or the second way, which is why would they want to harm you? No one would want to harm you if you do good. Then you're like, aha, I found a hole in your logic, Peter, because actually there are just straight up evil people who just do bad things and injustice results. And I get screwed for it. I get hurt for it. I get harmed by it. 
So Peter, look at you. This doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to read the rest of the passage. But Peter knows that as well. So in verse 14, we notice the phrase, but even if. But even if. Peter says, I know what you're thinking. I know you think it's not fair. And I know that you think that this logic does even if. But even if you suffer. Even if you suffer for righteousness sakes. Because what's going to happen if you continue to do good when people are doing evil to you? You're going to suffer for it. But even if you have to suffer. Peter knows that the conclusion is that it must be people who intentionally want to harm you is, is when you're going to experience injustice, right? That's the only category left. That if you're going to do good, then it must be people who are intentionally just trying to harm you, trying to do bad things against you. Like uh, people who are trying to, you know, cor- climbing the corporate ladder and they're intentionally, you know, trying to sideswipe you and get ahead because, you know, there's only one position available and they want that over you. Or there's only a certain, you're, on a, you're graded on a curve, and there's only a certain percentage of students who are going to be able to get that A grade, and they're going to intentionally give you the wrong cheat sheet, so you get screwed over, and you cheat off, you shouldn't be cheating in the first place. Anyway, Lord, my God, please, don't cheat. But you're going to get screwed over for using the wrong cheat sheet, so there are people who are intentionally trying to harm you. And can you imagine, like, if you know that there's someone who's intentionally trying to harm you, what's your reaction? What's your first response going to be? It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, 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 please, do keep doing that. Please step all over me. I'm a Christian doormat, please, like, welcome to my home. No! Like, it's, it's those moments where we sense any kind of injustice, that's when we say No! I'm gonna do, I'm gonna get back at you. I'm gonna like work, I'm gonna work my magic. I can do all these things. I'm, I'm like the king of cheat sheets and I know like how to get the right one. I'm gonna get it back to you and I'm gonna, you know, I'm in, you know, you don't even know that your cheat sheet that you think you're giving me is wrong. Yours is actually the wrong one and I'm gonna get you back and all this kind of stuff. Like we, we come up with all the different scenarios and we find ways to be able to repeat injustice with more injustice. And this is so true, is when we feel injustice has been done to us, is when we feel most justified with responding with injustice. Anything wrong. Like some of us are like, no, 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 I never do injustice. I never do anything wrong. But how, I mean, just be honest with ourselves today. Like when we feel injustice has been done to us is when we feel most justified with responding with injustice. I was, um, I was uh, in university and back in the U.S., uh, and I never grew up experiencing any kind of like racial discrimination. I lived in a fairly diverse community, and so I never felt like stereotyped or, you know, kind of called out as a minority until one time. Uh, I was shopping at a store, uh, those of you who have been to the U.S., there's a big store called Target. It's like one of my favorite stores. Some of you like love Target. It's like the best place ever. You find everything there. And... I was just shopping with my mom, and I think um, I was pretty unaware then. I'm still a little bit unaware now, but uh, especially very unaware during that time. And I was, like, speaking really, really loudly with my mom in Mandarin Chinese. And I know some of you are like, oh, my God, you can speak Mandarin Chinese. It must have been horrible. Um, But don't worry. I can speak to my family in Mandarin Chinese. And we were just having a conversation, talking and walking down the aisle. But we were speaking a little bit too loudly. And, you know, I forgot what we were talking about, but there was this lady... um, and it was, it was a white lady who was in front of us, who was kind of browsing some other things. And as we were walking by, like she, th- this lady turned around. And she's like, speak English. And I was like, whoa, like, who are you? You know, I was like, I was, I, I was so shy. I didn't know what, I just stopped talking. I was like, okay, okay. I was like, I just stopped talking. And as soon as that happened, I was like, wow, I've never experienced anything like this, but it really hurt. And, like, everything in my mind in that moment wanted to, like, fight back. You know, like, I wanted someone to, like, hold me back and just kind of go like this as hard as I could. In my mind, like, there were so many things going in my mind. I was like, like, who the freak are you? Like, 
like, why don't you speak Mandarin, you know? Like, why do I have to speak English? This is a free country, you know? English is not even the official language of the U.S. Do you not even know if you're a real citizen? Like, English is not even the official language of the country. There's no official language in the United States, for those of you who don't know. And I was like, you speak Mandarin. Come on. Like, I'm probably better than English. I wanted to say, you know, like, I'm an American citizen. You got no rights to call me out for not speaking English. Like, you know, I wanted to say all these things to her. And I don't know, like, as I reflected on it, I just realized, like, I mean, yes, her attitude was nasty. Yes, it was probably not merited. And yes, like, it was probably really wrong of her to say something like that. But I realized, like, something just came out of me. I just became, like, a monster that wanted to just, like, crush her in that moment because I just felt so offended. And I just realized it's so true. Like, when something really gets to us, that we feel every right to get back at that person. We feel every right to get back at that person. It stirs up feelings of what? Hatred. It stirs up feelings of division hostility, indifference, anger, racism, sexism, socioeconomic stereotyping, whatever it is, you list it, the the list goes on. All those things start to come out, and you just take a look around at our society, and whatever situation, not just coronavirus, not just protests, but any kind of movement, you can see any time there's injustice done to a group of people, what happens? Oftentimes, more than often than not, they respond with what? More injustice. And this is exactly what Jesus was warning people about. This is exactly what he was saying should not happen. Matthew 5, verses 39 to 30, uh, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 39, and also 43 to 48 in the New International Version. Let's read the highlighted portions together. It says, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That was a reference to the Old Testament back in Exodus and Deuteronomy where the law was like, if someone takes out your eye, you're supposed to take out their eye. And the Jesus is like, heck no, don't do that. That's not biblical. That's not what God's heart is. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard, in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It sends rain on the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is exactly what Peter is saying. He's saying it's so much our tendency, whenever we feel wrong, whenever we feel hurt, is to get back. And that was actually the instruction given to the Israelites. Because at that time, they needed a way to resolve disputes and laws and things like that. But Jesus, he's saying, that's not God's heart. God's heart, if you really understand, you follow Jesus, you follow his his, his, his life, you realize we are to love our enemies. We are to take the, if, if, if someone slaps you on the cheek, you give them the other cheek. Hey, slap me too. Boop. Slap me on again. Boop. You know, like, can you imagine if someone, like, you get into an argument with a friend, they go, bam! All right, here's, here's the other one. You know, like, well, just try it next time. You know, someone gets into an argument and they, like, do something to you, like, okay, do another one. You know, let's just see how they respond. And, when we think about you know, living this life, suffering for injustice or for doing what we feel like is right, it seems impossible. And this is the command of Christ. This is what he challenges us to do because it's the life that Jesus lived. It's the example that he set. So some of us, I think, many of us were, were sitting here and saying, okay, like, I don't disagree that that's biblical. I don't disagree that that's what should be done in the ideal world. But we don't live in an ideal world, Pastor Bill. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where it's hard to control our emotions. We live in a world where there's so many things that evil people do, and they just get away with it. So how can we actually live this out? It's impossible. Peter says, no, it's not impossible. And he gives us different ways that we ought to suffer 
for doing good. And verses, and we're going to continue, or we're going to look through more in, in deeply, verses 14 to 17, we'll give in case how we can actually suffer for doing good. The first way that he gives in verse 14 is not fearing people. Not fearing people. In that verse, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. How many of us, we know what you fear is what we worship? Amen? Okay, some of us, we don't believe that. Okay, let me explain then. Think, think, of a, think of a phobia that you have, like an insect. How many of us are afraid of like spiders or cockroaches? Like when you, when you see one, you're like, ah! Right? What you fear is what you worship. Because what you worship controls what you do. And I'm not saying you're like worshiping cockroaches like, huh, like cockroach. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that that cockroach controls your behavior. Right? I don't know if you've ever seen like a huge burly man like jumping like, ah! like, like at a cockroach, you know? You're like, you're like a million times bigger than that cockroach. What is that cockroach going to do to you? Nothing. I mean, it might run up, like, up your leg, and then you'll really freak out. But that cockroach controls your behavior. Or let's say you have a spider, or let's say you have a rat in your home. You, you're not going to go even close to whatever room that, that rat was in, right? Like, there was a, there was a restaurant in Wampo. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. <laughs> Some of you saw it on social media, right? And they're, like, at night, it was like a rat party. There were, like, ten some rats like running around the restaurant and then you know of course like after you see that like uh, there's no way you're ever gonna go eat at that restaurant it controls your behavior it dictates what you do what you fear is what you worship rosa parks experienced that she did not fear arrest she did not fear the police officers because her worship was to something different she had faith Similar to us, if we fear our boss, what happens? We're going to be controlled by our bosses. If we fear our company or the expectations that are put on us, especially those of us who are in the workplace right now, or to maintain it so enslaved and controlled to our workplace, to getting that promotion or to maintaining that image or to not losing that job because we're so afraid of what's going to happen to us. We're so afraid of not having financial security. That becomes what you worship. When you read this verse 14, when he says, have no fear of them, it's actually a, a reference to Isaiah 8.12, and I want to read it in, in, the, in the ESV. It says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. So it was actually referring to the Israelites. Isaiah was a prophet telling the Israelites, you're going to be conquered. The Assyrians are going to come in. They're going to destroy everything. So you need to be compliant with them. And, but Israel's like, no, I don't want to. And so they started to form a conspiracy against Isaiah. They were going against him. They were going against the word of God. So Isaiah is here saying, don't call conspiracy all that pe- this people calls conspiracy. And let's read it together. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him... You shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So why does Peter quote this passage from Isaiah? It's because he knows that when we fear people, when we fear fear the people who are harming us, what is that fear that we're really giving into? Then we end up fearing the very same things that they're fearing. We're buying into the same paradigm, the same lifestyle, the same values, the same beliefs as that group of people that we fear. We fear. That means you are complicit. So if that person is doing something to harm you because they want to get some better financial security and you fear them and you give into that, then what you are doing is you're worshiping the same God that they are worshiping. You're giving in to the God of financial security. You're giving in to the God of people-pleasing. You're giving in to the God of, you know, fear of security or whatever it might be. Which is not the real God. It's not. 
You're making the same mistakes as the Israelites did. And Peter is now here warning us, do not fear people. Because if you fear people, then you are buying into the same fear that they have. You're worshiping the same God. You're committing idolatry, which is the worst. One of the, if you look at the Ten Commandments, what is the first one, second one? First few, what does it all talk about? You shall not have any other gods before me. That was the, the main sin that the Israelites had all throughout the Old Testament. They constantly worshipped other gods. So do not fear people, but fear whom? Fear God more than anything else. That was the second way that we can suffer for doing good. Is number two is honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honoring the Christ the Lord as holy. In the Amplified Version, this verse, it says, But in your heart set Christ apart as holy, acknowledging him, giving him first place in your lives as Lord. Is Christ number one in your life? In the NLT, it says, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Some of us, we hated that last Bible study. Like, why should women call husbands Lord? You better call Christ Lord more than anything else. Amen? That's not strong. How many of us are we calling Christ our Lord? Amen? Yes. That's my challenge for us this morning. Is Christ number one in your life? Or is something else number one in your life? Are your children number one in your life? They're your God. Is your work number one in your life? Are your grades number one in your life? Are your parents number one in your life? Is your relationship number one in your life? Are your friendships number one in your life? Those are not bad things. But if they take the place of Jesus Christ, then you are in sin. You are in tree. And you will never understand what it means to follow Christ. And there's no way, there's no way that you will ever be able to stand in times of persecution, in times of suffering. Like, <clears throat> don't raise your hand. How many of us, we've worked out before or played sports? There have been times where I, you know, like, you think that you're able to do something, but then you realize, oh, shoot, I, I'm not able to do it. You know, like, there were, there were a couple of times, even recently, like, there was long stretches of time where I, I didn't work out, I didn't go running. And then I decided, like, yeah, I'm going to get back into shape. You know, New Year's resolution, you know, after the One Desire fast, I, like, lost some weight because of, you know, fasting. And I'm going to get back into shape and do all this kind of stuff. And so I plan out my route. I'm, I'm going to run this far. And I don't know why, but it just, I don't know, maybe it's the, the male ego or whatever. You just over, you always overestimate, like, what you think you're able to do. I'm like, oh, I'm going to run this far. And then you set out your, your, your route, and then you start running, and then like about like two or three minutes into the run, you're like, <sighs> I can't do it anymore, right? So what happens? I turn back. Like, that's it. Okay, I did my job. Like, okay, I got my heart rate up, and I did my, I, I got my five minutes in, and okay, we'll, we'll save it for next time. And I, I, I don't know, like some of us, we just have to wake up. Like, we're not as great as we think we are. Like, some of us, we think like, oh, I'm a great Christian. I go to, I'm, I'm here at Sunday Celebration with the coronavirus. I'm such an amazing Christian. I'm so faithful. I'm so good. Like, I'm not afraid of anything. God, you're number one in my life. And, and, and you, we do all these church things, and therefore we conclude, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian. But you don't realize that there might be situations or circumstances that might come that are going to test your faith. And this is the thing. Some of us, we cannot even follow God now. There's so many situations, challenges. Like, some of us, our life leader, we've been talking like, hey, what do you think about missions? Like, yeah, not really. You know. Is God number one in your life? Not saying that just because God is number one in your life, you have to do missions. But you're not even willing to consider it. If, if something number one in your life right now, then if something bigger comes up, if something harder comes up, if there's suffering and persecution, if people start doing things against you, I know, like, we've been talking about everything is changing in Hong Kong. You never know. Like, of course, everything's supposed to hand over in 47. 
but things are changing drastically. Who knows what's going to happen five, ten years? If things do change, like, are you going to stay faithful to your faith and still proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord if things get harder? If we're not able to meet publicly, openly anymore, if you get persecuted, if people come knocking on your door, saying, I'm going to arrest you if you do not deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. How many of us will be able to stand and say, yes, I will still worship God no matter what? If you can't do it here, then how in the world are you going to be able to do it here? Some of us are like, oh, I'm just going to move to a country where it's easy to be Christian. Don't you worry. Then God is going to put something else in your life that's going to challenge you. Your family is not going to be the way you think it's going to go. Your career is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. There's going to be something in your future where God is going to challenge you. Am I really number one in your life? And you're going to have to put your foot in the sand and say yes or no. And the earlier that you do it, the earlier you put your foot in the ground and say yes, then God is really going to honor that and believe that he's going to help us to learn what it means to suffer for doing good no matter what the situation So not only do we not fear people, and not only are we honoring Christ the Lord as holy, but the third way that Peter talks about suffering for doing good, he says, share your faith gently. Share your faith gently. In the, verse 15, it says, always be prepared to, be, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. In the Amplified, it says, always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. Oh, sorry, I read the wrong thing. Sorry. Always be ready to give a logical listed by faith. Anyone who asks you to account for the hope and confident assurance elicited by faith that is within you, yet do it with gentleness or respect. Does the way that you respond represent Christ? Does the way that you respond in that situation, is that not an opportunity to share your faith? And does it reveal to people that you have hope, that you have confidence, assurance, something outside of what the world has? To say, hey, even if someone is committing some kind of harm or injustice to me, my hope is beyond that. I have something greater. You know, like, 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 if something, if someone goes up to you, like, man, why aren't you? Why aren't you like all the other corporate people who are climbing the ladder and it's a doggy dog world where you're trying to like push all the other people down so that you can get up higher? And, I, and some of us like we just freeze in that moment and rather than like responding with faith, you know, our, our first response is like, yeah, why aren't I doing that? You're right. I should. Let's get at that person. You know, like that's a, that's a reaction. But what, what if we're like, you know what? I've got a secret that you don't know about. I mean, I like, don't say, like, people are like, what's wrong with you? You know, like, you're a little weird. You have to do it in a smooth way, right? Just, you know, if you have a deeper conversation with that person, to be able to say, you know what, like, my, my, my end goal is not financial stability. That's not where I put my hope in. My end goal is worshiping God. I mean, you just say it honestly. They're like, what the heck is worshiping God? But you just, if they're willing and open to, you have a relationship with them, you can share, then that's a perfect opportunity to what? Share your faith. And some of us, like, this is the thing where we're talking about Easter, we're talking about inviting friends, we're talking about evangelism. For students, you're in this TME, and we're going to talk about evangelization. We're like, I don't know how to invite my friends. There's no opportunity. There's so many opportunities. You just miss out on them. Part of suffering for doing good is learning to have those moments and encounters and conversations with people to say, I have some hope that is different than what the world has. So my question is, do we share? Do we take those opportunities? Do we identify those moments when, man, things are really unjust, but you know what? I'm able to live differently because my hope is in something else. And in verses 16 and 17, then Peter kind of concludes with saying, you know what? When you do good things, then other people are they're going to be put to shame because it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. 
Um, Tim Keller in, the, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, those of you who are going through just suffering in general, I think it's a good book to read just to understand God's heart a little bit more. But he just had a quote that stuck out to me. It says, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, so opposite of fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. So Christianity teaches that suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real, because Buddhism, everything is like Zen, right? So suffering is not real. You just have to get to this enlightenment stage. Contra-Karma, suffering is often unfair, because in, in our life, we believe that things are, are supposed to be fair. If you do something, then something's supposed to come back to you. But actually, Christianity teaches that suffering is, is often unfair. Contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. Why? Because secularism, if you believe everything is like atoms crashing together, then everything's just random. There's no meaning to anything. But Christianity, we believe suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. How many of us we see suffering like that? Not only is it something that we need to learn to suffer because we ought to do good, but in suffering, what it does, it refines our hearts. It shows what we put our hope in. And when it shows what we put our hope in, it can either drive us into the love of God more or could drive us more away from God to make us doubt more, to make us question. But I'm wondering if we could have this perspective to realize, you know what, God? Part of this is good for me because it requires, it forces me to go more than anything else. So I want to ask, how about us? How is this command to do good even while suffering reveal what we put our hope in? Are there situations, are there people, your, your spouse, your parents, your bosses, your governments, friends, some of you have experienced betrayal. Are there experiences or moments where we've had injustice, whether big or small, right? Where we've been taken advantage of. That reveals something about our hearts and the way we respond. And it might reveal something that God is trying to do in our lives, to put our hope more in Jesus Christ rather than anything else. So not only does doing good reveal your hope, but also, second point as we move on now, doing good reassures your heart. Not only does doing good reveal your hope, but doing good also reassures your heart. I think some of us were like, yeah, God, I'm trying, and I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I know it's good for me, but God, it's just hard. It's just too hard. Like, God, why would you, why would you, why would you make this the, the, the system of how this is accomplished? Now, Peter doesn't leave us just hanging, like saying, this is what you're supposed to do, and it's just good for you, and therefore, just do it and suffer. But he gives us an encouragement at the end. Let's read verses 18 to 22 together. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In this couple of verses, we notice that Peter explains how Christ is both our example, he's our example because so our encouragement. And it's important to know that he's our example because, you know, like, otherwise we're just left hanging. So, first, his example. Christ also suffered once for sins. He suffered unjustly. If there's anyone who suffered unjustly, it was Jesus Christ. He did nothing wrong. I mean, yes, he was a little bit sassy with the Pharisees, so maybe the Pharisees were trying to, like, get back at him that way. You know, like, well, Jesus did this, so I'm going to kill you, Jesus, you know? I don't know if there's a proportionate response. But Jesus suffered unjustly. And did he retaliate? Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the soldiers were attacking him, and, you know, I, the disciple who, like, cut off the guy's ear, what did Jesus do? He's like, yeah, 
get him. No. Jesus said, stop. And he actually healed the guy. And he said, I am the person that you want. He goes with them willingly. And even when he's being tried, falsely accused, what does he do? He doesn't open his, he doesn't object. He willingly takes the, the thrashing. Thorns in his back, on his brow, carrying the cross, being nailed, suffering unjustly. If there's anyone that knows about unjust suffering, it's Christ. And not only does his example encourage us, because, you know, sometimes you're like, well, that's Jesus. He's God. That doesn't help me at all. But what his example does has ramifications for all of us. Because it says, being put to death in the flesh. That was Christ. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What does that mean for us? It means we have life. It means we have life. Something dramatic changes because he exemplified suffering unjustly. Because when you suffer unjustly, something miraculous happens. Let's go back to the example of Rosa Parks. When Rosa Parks did that, what happened? That was a trigger for the civil rights movement to gain momentum. In fact, what happened after Rosa Parks did that on the bus in that city that was the city of Montgomery in Alabama, that, that bus system for all blacks, colored people, what they ended up doing was boycotting the whole bus system for over a year until they got the law changed. So if she had not led by example, if she had not first stood up to say, you know what, I'm going to suffer unjustly, get arrested for something greater to happen. In fact, she was part of the NAACP. She was already an activist. She knew what she was doing. Some people were like, oh, Rosa Parks is just tired. She's just older, you know, she just wanted to sit, and therefore she's willing to get arrested for being, who gets arrested for being tired? She knew what she was doing. It was intentional. And her example, it led to the change of the law. And buses were no longer restricted in that way. She freed, in some sense, the whole colored population in that city. Sindler, Christ, his example, what did it do? It freed us. We are no longer bound by all the restrictions, by all the injustice, by all the suffering of this world. We are now set free to have a relationship with him for eternity. We are alive in Christ. How many of us we believe that? We're alive in Christ. Amen? Some of us were falling asleep this morning. We don't believe it. You do not believe it because the way that you live is just like the world. You say all the amens in church, and I know you're saying it because I'm asking you to say it, so I'm not calling you out for that. But we say it, we do it, but we don't really believe it. It was Christ's example, and the second thing he gives us is encouragement. Peter ends this passage in a very interesting way. You know, usually you think, oh, it's all about Christ, and Christ is on the cross, and, you know, good job, we're done, mic drop, we're done with the sermon, amen, we're going to leave encouraged. But in verses 20 to 22, he starts talking about this other stuff, very interesting, about Noah. Like, what does Noah have to do with his suffering? Let me just read that verse 20, 20 again. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Peter, then all of a sudden, which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So why is Peter then all of a sudden turning to Noah? And why does it say that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Actually, commentaries suggest that Jesus did not literally go to the spirits in prison, like somehow do a time warp, go back in time, go to prison or hell or whatever that you, you think it is, and then preach to them. What commentary suggests is actually Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, because Jesus didn't just start existing in the New Testament. He was yesterday, today, and forever, right? He was there since the beginning of creation. So through the Holy Spirit, Jesus preached through Noah to all the people. Like most of us, when we think of the Noah story, what do you think of? Like the ark, the animals, the rainbow, right? Building blocks, you know, we, we like, oh, double rainbow, yay, it's like God's promises. But think about it. Like when God said, hey, Noah, I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to destroy all people. You build an ark. 
Like what was like what did Noah have to do? He had to build the ark. How long do you think it takes to build an ark? A day or two? No. It takes a long time. And can you imagine like what were Noah's peers or colleagues or friends thinking while Noah was building the ark? On dry ground. There's no water. Like they're probably like, well, what is this guy doing? Like, it makes no sense. It's so stupid. You know, like, you should be getting ahead. You know, Noah probably was getting behind in his career, behind in his family life. You know, like, wasting all this time doing something that seemed so meaningless while all of his friends were getting ahead in life and probably, like, screwing him over. Noah probably experienced some kind of persecution or suffering. And what Jesus did through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, was through Noah's example of building the ark by faith, he was preaching to the rest of humanity at that time to say, through suffering, I'm going to do what I believe is right, what is honoring to God. And what Peter is saying is that Noah had faith, and through his obedience and building, because Noah could have been like, well, forget this ark. Like, I want to get ahead of my career. I want, I want to get back at those people who are like slandering me, who are doing all these things. And the way he got back at the ark, he, had, he didn't revile them. He didn't do evil to them. He obeyed God. He built that ark. He had that faith. And you know what happened after that? He was saved because of it. He says only eight people were saved. And so that's why Peter says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that just like Noah obeyed God by preaching by proclaiming the gospel through his faith by building the ark, even though a lot of people were attacking him, probably persecuting him, doing injustice to him. But he still had faith and he was obedient to God. And that faith that he had, what? It saved him. Similarly for us, when we follow and we have faith and we trust and obey God, that faith that we demonstrate, it saves us. When you undergo persecution and suffering for your faith, it saves us. Your willingness to go through suffering, your willingness to obey God, even though the whole world is going the opposite way, your willingness to say, you know what, I'm still going to do good to all people, even though they do poor things to me, demonstrates your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the faith which saves you. This is when you get to know and find out if your faith is really genuine or not. And this is the faith that I hope that all of us, we can say at the end of the day, yes, I have and I believe in Jesus Christ and my Lord and my Savior. In every situation. And that when it comes to saying, you know what? Jesus Christ, he is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Yes, that is the God that I worship. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is no other power, no anything else that I will subject myself to. And I'm willing to bank my life on that, even if it means going through suffering for the rest of my life. I'll read one more quote from the book that Tim Keller writes so that we could be close. Just kind of summarizes all of it. He says, Jesus lost all of his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes what? A diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. And I'm praying that the suffering that we experience, even though they're small sufferings, they're, and I don't want to kind of belittle the suffering that many of us we've gone, some of us we've gone through really traumatic experiences, really difficult suffering. So I'm not belittling in any way, but the suffering that we do experience, I'm praying that it would really turn us from these, these little pieces of coal into pure diamond that will shine the light of Christ wherever it is that we go to. And we have this hope. I just want to read one last verse, Romans 6, 
5 to 11 in the NLT says, let's read it together. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would consider ourselves dead to sin, dead to this world, dead to any ability to like, repay evil for evil or get back or do an injustice because we feel unjustly or unfairly treated. And my prayer is that we will consider ourselves dead to all those things. Why? Because we have faith in Christ. We have a new, not only are we dead to those things, but now we are alive. We have a new hope. We have a new eternity. We have a new destiny. And as we believe that, then we are going to be able to suffer for doing good. That's why the one thing I want to leave us with this morning is that part of living as Christ would is learning to suffer for doing good. Part of living as Christ would is learning to suffer for doing good. I want to give us just a few next steps. First is just reevaluate what your hope is in. Spend some time this week. Jot some notes down. If you, if you are going through some kind of suffering right now, then, then reflect through that situation. If you're not, if life is peachy right now, then be prepared. Think through. Like There are going to be things that are going to happen in the future that are going to test you. So we have to reevaluate. What is our hope in? Like some of the things I brought up earlier, grades, family, work, career, kids. What is your hope in? Reevaluate that. Number two, resolve to do good and future suffering. If you, if you, if we were to preach this, and, and part of the reason Pastor Seth and I felt like this was a book that we need to share is because we need to teach it before it happens. So if you get in that suffering time, you're like, okay, let me try to do good. It's not going to work. You have to make a commitment to say, today, God, and for whatever future period that I'm going to go through, no matter what suffering I go through, I'm willing to do good. I'm committed. I'm resolved. And that doesn't mean you're never going to fail. That doesn't mean you're not going to slip up here and there. But to say, God, I'm, I'm making this resolve. I'm putting my foot in the sand. I'm making a statement. I'm standing for what I believe in. And that no matter what comes up, God, I'm going to follow through. Last thing is recommit to sharing your faith. Recommit to sharing your faith because those are the moments, the key moments that we can share more than any time else about the hope that we have. Like some of us, I, I, um, with, my, with my work, uh, we started having a rotational schedule. I know some of us are starting to go back into the office. Perfect times of having, of course, because you have with your colleague, you know, of course, like from 10, 10, 10 meters away, like, hey, how are you? know, things like, of course, because you have rotational schedule and you're not supposed to sit next to each other. But just even talking as you're walking by each other. Say, oh, like, how have you been? What have you been doing? You know, yeah, I've been, like, you know, at home, not trying to do much, trying to stay away from everything. What have you been up to? You know, and someone was like, yeah, not much. Nothing. Just, you know, chilling, eating, watching Netflix. And none of us would eat this. That's a perfect opportunity. You know, actually, I've been doing this, and I've been praying. I, you know, there have been times I've been anxious, and we're shared vulnerably, right? It doesn't, there's nothing wrong with feeling anxious. There's nothing wrong with feeling hurt or fearful. But what you do in that moment reveals about what you believe. So, yes, I've been fearful. Yes, I've been struggling. Yes, it's been hard. But, man, I've been challenged to have faith, and I've been trying to, like, work through that. And, man, it's been such an encouragement because... Even through that wrestling, that I've been able to encourage someone else, and they really experienced something through that. How many of us we were able to share and find those moments and share that as a testimony to your colleagues, to your friends, to your family of what God has done? Because so many people they, they don't they don't have hope. Coronavirus is like literally like the end. Of, some people are like, oh, it's like the end times, and so for us, the end times means we get to be with Jesus, but for other people, it means death. It means you're in a grave. There's nothing else. 
So when you can share that hope, then it brings something that maybe they've never ever heard of before. Let's commit to, especially as we look toward Easter. It's coming up soon. And I know there's still a lot of things going on, and we're like, oh, can we even like have a big thing with Easter? With the, like, let's still believe that God is going to allow us to share our faith, no matter where we are. For such a time as this, is, might be the most important time to share our faith. Because you never know, what if that person does catch the virus? And then, yeah, they're in the hospital. What are you going to do? Oh, yeah, yeah, now, I was going to tell you before, but now I really need to tell you. What, what good is that? Let's tell them now before something happens. Amen? Now let's stand together as we respond. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.